Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. Again, it's good to be back. We had a good restful vacation. We got to visit a like-minded church up in Michigan and um, worship with the brothers and sisters there. And But again, it's not, nothing like being home. So, so a couple weeks ago, we finished up John chapter 8. And every couple chapters in the book of John... I like to take a break from going through John's Gospel and do a shorter series. So we've done things on the law and the Gospel. What do those mean for the Christian life? How do we distinguish those things and how does that affect how we live? We did a series on the means of grace where we talked about these means that God has given His church to grow in grace, to have their faith strengthened in Christ. And as we take a break this time, we're going to look at Christ in all the Scriptures. That'll be the name of the series. And we're going to look at that because at the end of John chapter 8, if you remember last time, we looked at this idea, the fact that Abraham was looking forward to Christ. That 1,500 years before Christ was even born, we find in John chapter 8 that Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ. And he saw it and he was glad. And we talked about the idea that Christ was the object of Abraham's faith. He was a believer in the mediator, the one that was to come. But what does this mean? <laughs> really, practically, it's easy to kind of say that. But what does this mean for how we understand the Bible? What does this mean for how we put all of Scripture together? What are the Old and the New Testaments? Are they two separate stories? Are they two different plans of God, of salvation? Or is there one plan and purpose of God? And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the story of the Scripture and we're going to find Christ in all of the Scriptures. This one plan of salvation founded in Christ, that God has revealed His plan of redemption through the work of Christ, beginning all the way back in the third chapter of the Bible. That he has a plan to bring sinners into salvation and redeem his fallen creation, and that he's going to do this and make it better than the beginning. It's going to be better than even in the garden, and we're going to see that the way God does this is by way of covenant, by way of covenant. So we're going to be looking at the various covenants in the Scriptures, and we're going to see that God's plan of salvation is not this isolated, random, unrelated events or unrelated covenants, but that it is the very heart of God and His saving purposes is this idea of covenant, that God is a God of covenant, and it's all culminated in the work of Christ in the new covenant, but that's not separated or other than the covenants that we find in the Old Testament Scripture. So we're going to look at, over the next couple of weeks, this week we're going to look at the covenant of works in the garden. We'll look at the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then finally we'll look at the new covenant in Christ, all pointing to and culminating in the work of Him and His kingdom. And so this morning, we're going to look at three different things. You can follow along on your outline if you want. First, we're going to look at what is a covenant. <laughs> it's the name of our church, but what is it? How do we define it? That's very important. R.C. Sproul, always define the terms before you um, use them, right? So we're going to define the terms. Daryl likes that. We're going to define the terms. So what is a covenant? What is covenant theology? Why, why is it something that we can do? 
And then we're going to look at this idea of the covenant of works in the garden. And then finally, we're going to look at how does this help us see the gospel of Christ and what he has done in his finished work. And so we're going to begin this morning. Our reading is going to come from Genesis 1 through 3. It's going to be a little bit of a longer reading, so just hang with me. Just remember that in the early church, for a majority of the church's history, they did not have personal Bibles. And the only time they heard the Scriptures or saw the Scriptures was on Sunday when the Scripture was read. So just keep that in mind. (laughs) I'm not going to read all of Genesis 1 through 3. I'm going to kind of do an overview and touch on the important points but this is going to help set up what we're going to talk about um, with our second point this morning. So in Genesis 1, it begins with God creating. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that he created all things in the span of six days. And we're going to pick up at Genesis 1, verse 26, where we see the creation of man. This is the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Jumping down to verse 8. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jumping down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely eat die. We go on to see God make 
Eve from Adam's side. We see this marriage covenant between Adam and Eve. And then jumping down to um, chapter 3, we see the fall into sin. Eve is deceived. She eats of the fruit and she gives the fruit to Adam and they both realize their nakedness and they try to cover up their sin and hide from the Lord. And then jumping down to chapter 3, verse 8, we pick up on God in His judgment. And it says, and they heard, this is Adam and Eve, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, or in the spirit of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then God pronounces the curses. He says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then jumping down to verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life." Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these first couple chapters in the book of Genesis. So much information um, to take in, so much that can be overwhelming. And so we pray this morning as we look at um, man and the covenant of works in the garden, we pray that you would give us eyes to see that we would see that what is going on in the first couple chapters is not disconnected from the rest of the Scriptures, but is the thing that runs all the way through to the very end in the new heavens and the new earth. We pray this morning that as we look to the Scriptures, that we would see Christ, His person and work, and that we would look to Him with the eyes of faith, trusting and knowing that You are able to save us from our sins, that You have come to Um, to make a way of salvation. And this morning, by the power of your Spirit, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and that we would be changed for one degree of glory to the next. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. So as we see, the the Bible can be um, a daunting book to try to read. And maybe this is, this is probably the section that you would come to in the first couple chapters of your Bible reading plan. Maybe January 1, you would come to Genesis 1, 
through three. And most people have heard these stories before. We tell them to our children. We're familiar with Genesis chapter one through three, the story of creation, the story of God, what he's done. But it's difficult to put all these things together and to understand the depths of what is happening. And if we zoom out even further and we look at the whole Bible, 66 books written over thousands of years, hours and hours worth of reading to to read through the whole scripture. How do we put these things together? How do we understand the Bible? How do we understand God's plan of salvation? And the answer that we're going to give is the key to this is the word covenant. The word covenant is the key to unlocking and understanding all of God's redemptive purposes. Charles Spurgeon said, the key of all theology is covenant. (laughs) The key of all theology is covenant. The key that unlocks, that opens the doors that that feel close to us at times. The covenant of works by which we fell and the covenant of grace by which we are saved. And so the first question we need to ask this morning is, what is a covenant? (laughs) What is a covenant? What do we mean when we say the word covenant? The children's catechism answer is pretty simple, and I think it's actually very helpful. It says, an agreement between two or more parties. A covenant is an agreement between two or more parties or persons. And we're very familiar with this concept. Um, Marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman, right? It is an agreement between them, (laughs) consensual. It's an agreement that they will come together in marriage, and it's between two people, one man and one woman. Our jobs, in some sense, are a covenant. We agree that if we do the work, that we will be paid for the work that we've done. If we don't do the work... Will be fired, <laughs> or um, or you won't get paid. Um, we're familiar with these types of covenant relationships. So these are all human covenants. But what we're talking about in this series is divine covenants, covenants that God imposes on man, not human to human covenants, but g- covenants that God imposes, and that's what we'll look at in the scriptures. That what we see in scripture is that a covenant is also, it's not just an agreement, but it's an agreement with sanctions, with, um, with threats, which sounds very foreboding, but that's what a covenant is. You know, if you don't do this, there's going to be consequences. If you don't go to work, you'll be fired. So it's not just, I will do this. That's simply a commitment. I will clean my room. I will go to the store. But it's a commitment with with sanctions with something attached to it i will do this or else there's a consequence there's and this is to guarantee that the thing is fulfilled and that's why you sign an agreement at your work so that they can say we'll fire you if you don't do this or whatever and so basically what we can say is a covenant has blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience and so covenants are these relational things that God has created by which to bring benefits to us, his people. So we all receive benefits in different ways from our jobs. In marriage, we receive benefits. But in these divine covenants, God is imposing covenants on his people to benefit them, to give them benefits, namely communion with him, to strengthen their relationship with him. That's what we see throughout the scriptures. And these covenants can be categorized in two different main categories, covenants of work or covenants of grace. Covenants of work are where the, where the conditions 
need to be met in order to receive the benefits. The benefits must be earned. You have to work for the benefits, for we could say they are merited, that the conditions must be met in order to obtain the promises. This can be summarized by do this and live. Do this and receive the benefits. That's a covenant of work. A covenant of grace, on the other hand, is very different. It is not where the benefits are earned by the party, but the benefits are given as a grace, as a gift. The benefits are not to be earned or worked for, but they're to be received as a gift. This is a covenant of grace, and we see this confirmed in places like Romans chapter 4, where Paul talks about those that do not work, but believe. So there's this contrast between working to obtain a wage or a benefit and believing, receiving as a gift the benefits. So this is covenants of works and covenants of grace. And hopefully we can already start to see how this is connected to the gospel of Christ, what he's done, how we're saved from our sins. But before we can go straight to how we're saved from our sins, we have to look and understand what was going on before sin even entered the picture. We have to look at humanity before sin and the covenant God made with Adam in the garden. So this brings us to our second point, the covenant of works. The covenant of works. And it, and it worked out pretty well. We're going to look at the first three chapters of the Bible, and in kind of a parallel way, we're going to look at these three things. We're going to look at this is kind of three subpoints. We're going to look at man in creation in Genesis chapter 1. Then in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at man in covenant. And then finally, in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see man in curse. So first we look at man in creation. So Genesis chapter 1 opens with this great chapter. We see God as the sovereign creator, the one who creates all things, ex nihilo, from nothing. He creates all all things. He creates the world and everything in it. He's, he's presented as this great suzerain king, the ruler of all things, all-powerful, all-wise, who brings order out of the chaotic waters of the deep, as we see in Genesis chapter 1. And on the first day, he creates light. He separates it from the darkness. He creates the sky, and he separates it from the water. He creates the land, and he separates it from the sea. And then in the last three days, we see that he fills his creation with the sun and the moon and the stars. He fills the sky with the birds of the heavens. He fills the sea with the fish and all the, the water creatures. And then he fills the land with every living creature, and they all rule over their respective areas. The sun rules the day, the moon rules the night, the birds rule the sky, the fish rule the sea. And then on the sixth day, as we read this morning, God finishes his creation, the pinnacle of his creation is what? Man. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. He alone is in the image of God. None of the creatures are. The sun isn't. Only man is created in the image of God in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And man, as we saw, is called to rule over God's creation. He's given dominion over every created thing. We could say he's a vassal ruler under God and is given dominion to rule over God's creation. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, 
Verse 26, man is to image God by taking dominion and filling and multiplying the earth. So man is created good. Man is created, as the kid's catechism says, holy and happy, (laughs) right? There's no sin. There's no darkness. There's nothing forbidding man. There's just he is holy and happy. He's created good. He's called to obey God. He's called to reflect his image. He's called to reflect his glory. He has the law of God written on his heart, the Ten Commandments. He's called to obey the moral law of God, and he has everything he needs to keep the law. And yet, man is not at his final state. Man is not at his final goal. Why do I say that? That can sound puzzling, I think, because we think of the Garden of Eden as this perfect place, and it was. There was no sin, (laughs) there was no darkness. How can there be something better for man than the Garden of Eden? But the reason we know that is because even though man is created morally good and upright, he is still able to sin. He is still able to change. The technical word is he's still mutable. I like that's a fun word. Mutable. He's mutable. He's able to change. He's able to sin. How do we know this? Because he does. (laughs) Spoiler alert. He does sin. So there's a higher state held out for man that he has not reached yet. A final state. We could call it an eschatological state. And we see this pictured in Genesis chapter 2 in the day of Sabbath rest. That this rest is held out for man. This, it's a picture of this eternal glory, this everlasting, unchanging life. That the seventh day, the seventh day of rest, marks not only the completion of God's work of creation and his enthronement over all he has made, right? God rests, he completes his work, he, he, it's this picture of almost God sitting down and saying, my work is done. You know, after a hard day of work, when you sit down, <laughs> you rest. It's almost what's being pictured here. God is enthroned over all his creation, but it also is a picture of the consummate Sabbath rest that was held out for man. That man, created in the image of God, was to image God by working and then entering his rest, entering God's rest. One theologian says this, as God's servant son, man was to reflect the divine glory, advancing through the six days of work to the seventh day of completion, from kingdom development to a Sabbath of joyous shalom, shalom, from work begun to work completed. So Adam was to image God he was to work, and then he was to enter God's rest. But how, how would God receive this eternal life? How was Adam going to receive this? The answer brings us to subpoint number two, man in covenant. The answer is by way of covenant. That man was not only created good by God, but in his kindness and condescension, God enters into a covenant with Adam. We read this in our Confession of Faith this morning. This is what we call the covenant of works. This is a covenant that God enters into with Adam, divinely imposed by God, by which Adam can receive blessings and benefits, namely eternal life, (laughs) glory, Sabbath rest at God's hand forevermore, and for all those that are represented by Adam. So just as God worked, Adam was to work, 
and enter God's rest. This is what we call the covenant of works. And this is called the covenant of works because it is a conditional covenant. Adam had to obey God. Not only the moral law of God that was written on his heart, right? Serve God alone, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. He not only had to do that, but he had to obey the positive command of not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That in order to receive the blessings, the benefits, the reward, Adam had to work and obey God. Not just sometimes, not just when he felt like obeying, but perfectly, personally, and perpetually, continually. He couldn't fail at any point. (laughs) And Adam, as the federal representative head of the covenant of works, he represented all of humanity. All those that would come from Adam, Adam represented. Or you could say it like this, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Whatever happened to Adam would happen to all those that he represented, all those that came from him. So if Adam obeyed, he would earn life, blessing, eternal life, Sabbath rest at God's right hand. But if he disobeyed, it would bring death and curse and punishment. And we read about that in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, in the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. So these are the sanctions that we talked about that accompany a covenant. Blessing for obedience, curse for disobedience. Do this and you'll receive eternal life. Disobey and you will receive death and curse. And what's amazing, I remember when I, when I first had this explained to me, it was just like light bulbs going on. We see these concepts are reflected, are symbolized in the two trees in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life. It represented the eternal life that was held out for Adam. It was a covenantal, sacramental, if you will, symbol of what was promised to Adam if he obeyed the covenant of works, the tree of life. It represented eternal life, immutable communion with God held out for Adam if he obeyed God. One theologian, Gerhardus Voss, says this, the tree was associated with the higher, the unchangeable, the eternal life that was to be secured by obedience throughout his probation or his testing, that if Adam passed the test, if he passed his probation, he would receive eternal life. He would earn eternal life from God by way of covenant. So that's the tree of life that represented the blessing. The other tree represented the curse, the threat. This was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was a visible sign, a symbol of this test, of this probation, of the threat of the covenant, that if Adam ate from this tree, death would fall on him and all he represented. And so we can say that these are signs of the covenant, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that Adam was to work, he was to obey God, he was to resist temptation, he was to defeat the serpent, the enemy of God, and secure consummated Sabbath rest for all that he represented. This is what Adam was called to do. Just by way of summary, this is a little bit of a longer quote, but 
I think it's so helpful for understanding everything that we've just said. This is from Meredith Klein. Under God's covenant with mankind in Adam, attainment of the eschatological or the end times kingdom and Sabbath rest was governed by a principle of works. Adam, representative of mankind, was commissioned to fulfill the probationary assignment. He must perform the one meritorious act of righteousness. Does that sound familiar? Romans chapter 5, the one act of righteousness. This act was to have the character of a victory in battle. An encounter with Satan was a critical aspect of this probationary crisis. To enter into judicial combat against this enemy. I love that. (laughs) He had to enter into judicial combat with this enemy of God and to vanquish him in the name of God was the covenantal assignment that must be performed by the servant of the Lord as his one act of righteousness. It was the winning of this victory of righteousness by the one that would be imputed to the many as their act of righteousness and as their claim on the consummated kingdom offered in the covenant. There's a lot of words. There's a lot of things. But what he's saying is Adam was supposed to face the serpent, defeat the serpent, and win all these benefits for all he represented. But as we know, Adam failed. (laughs) It didn't take long. It was not long before sin and curse were brought into God's good creation. And so that brings us to our third subpoint: man in curse. We read in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam failed. And we see this even confirmed in the book of Hosea. It looks back on this in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7. It says, And Israel, like Adam, transgressed the covenant. So we see that Adam has failed. He has broken the covenant, that Satan uses the subtlety of the serpent. He deceives Eve. Adam takes and he eats and he brings death and curse to all. This is what we call the fall, this giant black mark in human history, that before the fall there was no sin, and after the fall we see all of creation is affected by this event. Why is there death on the earth? Why is there suffering and sin in God's creation? Is this the way God made things? The answer is no. It's because of the fall into sin. And so we see that Adam violated this covenant of works. He he didn't just take a piece of fruit that he wasn't supposed to take. I think some people can think that. This seems like a big overreaction, right? I mean, a fall into sin and all the destruction and darkness that's in our creation. I mean, they just ate the wrong fruit. I mean, cut them some slack. But when we understand that this is a covenant that they have broken, God has said, do not do this. And they have, they have gone against, they've usurped God's authority. They're trying to make themselves God. And so they have violated this covenant. And because of that, we see God's judgment poured out. That the curses of the covenant fall on Adam and all of mankind. He's expelled from the garden. He's condemned to death. God places a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance of the garden, showing that eternal life and entrance into God's safe presence is no longer possible under this covenant. 
that Adam has broken it, and if someone would enter, they would need to go through this fiery sword judgment. And so we see we're brought right into the present reality. In a moment, we can see the effects of sin in our own lives, the effects of this fall on all of humanity. Sam Renahan says this, Conceived in sin, born in Adam, we, like the rest of mankind, are spiritually dead. Those virtues of human nature, once given to man that were good, are now polluted and corrupted. Our mind, will, and affections are bent towards sin. They're bent. (laughs) They're curved, twisted. Wicker, right? Doesn't wicker mean bent? They're bent. They're wicked. This is all of us and the effects of sin, that Adam's sin has been imputed to us, and we have our own sin we have to deal with. We are born in sin that our confession says our very nature is corrupted. And we see this not only in us, but in all of creation. And it's actually reflected in the curses that God pronounces on mankind. What's he say to man? You're supposed to work, but it's only going to bring up thorns and thistles. (laughs) You're supposed to bring forth food from the earth as I commissioned you to do, but now it's cursed. And the same thing for woman. You're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, but now you're going to have pain in childbearing. It's going to be painful. It's going to be dangerous. And so all the same things that God was commissioning man to do before work and multiply, man still has to do those things, but it's cursed and it's common to all people. And so we see that even though God has pronounced the covenant curses on Adam and Eve and all of creation, not just Adam is cursed, but all of creation is cursed. God has said, if you disobey, there will be death and punishment, and God has brought it. Not only physically will there be death in his creation, but spiritually there will be death, and ultimately, eternally, there will be death. But yet, in the midst of this, in the midst of covenant curses, we see that there is still hope for God's creation. That before man is cursed, God pronounces a curse on Satan. That before man is cursed, God pronounces a curse on the serpent. And within this curse of judgment on Satan, there is a promise of salvation for Adam and Eve. We read about this in Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the seed, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what we call the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. That one is going to come from woman that will do everything that Adam failed to do. And that even though this one that's going to come is going to suffer, he's going to be bruised in his heel, suffer a mortal wound, he is still going to crush the head of the serpent. This is amazing. (laughs) In the third chapter of the Bible, we see this promise of what God would do. This is the revelation of God's covenant of grace. Not a covenant of works, but God's covenant of grace. We see that there's no call in here to work. There's no conditions. 
There's no works, but it's grace. We see that one is going to earn the benefits for them and that those benefits are going to be received as a gift. This is all baked into Genesis 3.15, that one is going to come from the woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent, destroy Satan and the works of the devil, and bring about salvation for God's people. And so this brings us to our third and final point this morning, Adam and Christ. We see that God doesn't leave man in their sin. He doesn't leave humanity to its own devices. He doesn't step back and say, good luck, <laughs> you fell into sin, you, you made your bed, lie in it. No, within minutes, <laughs> he pronounces grace by way of covenant, that God has a remedy for Adam's sin. And the rest of the Scriptures, the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3.15 on is this unfolding of this gospel promise. And as one pastor said, if you don't understand what's going on in Genesis 3.15, you'll miss what the rest of the Bible's about, which is a pretty sobering thing to think about. And if you think about it, the Old Testament itself is building towards something. If you take away the New Testament, it feels incomplete. It feels like it's missing something, and that's because it's building towards something that God is going to save His people He's going to bring many sons to glory. He's going to bring his people to Sabbath rest. But it's not going to be through the first Adam. It's going to be through the second and last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The true and eternal Son of God. That the, what the New Testament says is that this seed of the woman, the one promised in Genesis 3.15, the New Testament says that that is Christ, <laughs> the incarnate Son of God. He is the one that would come and destroy the works of the devil. He would come as the true Son of God and Son of Man, the true prophet, priest, and king. And he would do this in two ways. He would come to fulfill all the demands of the law, all the ways that Adam was supposed to obey God Christ would come and do, and He would do it perfectly, personally, and continually, never failing at any point. Never failing at any point. He would perfectly resist temptation from the devil, from the serpent, and in His active obedience, He would secure perfect righteousness for His people. But not only would He secure righteousness but he would take the covenant curse sanctions that we deserved. So he doesn't just do what's right. He also suffers for those that have done wrong. He undergoes the fiery, flaming judgment. And this time, in another garden, not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane, we see not blessing and fruit, but anguish and sweat in blood. We see our Lord miserable over the cross that was to come. And in Genesis, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 3, we see that on the cross, Christ became a curse for us. That the curse that we deserved is poured out on the perfect, spotless Son of God. And that in His passive obedience, He suffers perfectly for our sins, absorbs the wrath that we deserved, takes the punishment and wrath of God. Why did he do this? 
Why did Christ come? Why did He take on flesh? Why did He do this? He came to do what Adam failed to do. (laughs) He came to do what Adam failed to do. Adam failed to obey God. Christ always obeyed God. Adam was supposed to earn eternal life. Christ came to earn eternal life. And what did we read this morning in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5? Listen to this. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of woman. The seed of the woman in the fullness of time was born. Born under the law. All the duties that were required of an image bearer of God, Christ was born under those. Why? To redeem those who were under the law, under its weight, under its curse, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ has done what Adam failed to do. This is, way, this, is, this is the amazing part. You think, Kendall, maybe, maybe he's lost it. <laughs> maybe he's off his rocker. There's some good things in there, Kendall, but, but the word covenant isn't in Genesis chapter 2, right? So that doesn't sound right to me. Or other people can say, that just seems like you're imposing something on the text. You're not letting the Bible speak for itself. But how does the New Testament look back at what's happening in the garden? The New Testament looks back at Adam and it calls him a type of Christ. That's what we read in Romans chapter 5, that Adam pointed forward to what Christ would do, that by Adam's unrighteousness, all were made sinful. But by the one man's act of righteousness, the many will be made righteous. That it's not by working, but by faith not by the covenant of works that we receive salvation, but by the covenant of grace, the new covenant in Christ's blood. And that upon his death and resurrection, he's saying, I accomplish salvation. It's finished. It's done. It's complete. By faith, we are united to him and all his benefits. And this is only possible by way of covenant, by way of the covenant of grace. So what do we take away from this this morning? as we reflect two things, two brief things. First, this should change the way we read the Scriptures. This should change the way we look at our Bibles. It should change the way we look at the Old Testament. What did Jesus say in John chapter 5? You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that speak about me. Do we read the Bible that way? Do we read the Old Testament that way? Do we read the Old Testament as about Christ, pointing forward to Him, anticipating, promising the work that He would do? This is what we call Christ-centered hermeneutics or interpretation. When we look at the Bible, are we looking at it through the lens of Christ, or are we just seeing it as good moral stories about how to live like Abraham, how to be like David, how to defeat the Goliaths in your life? Or is it about the work of Christ promising what He will do? This should change how we see this idea of Christ in all the Scriptures. It should change and affect how we read the Bible. And secondly, this should change how we see salvation. That you are either in Adam, under the covenant of works, liable to obey all the commands of the law perfectly, or you are in Christ 
There's no middle way. There's no middle road. You are either condemned in Adam or redeemed in Christ. That is the only way of salvation. You are either under the covenant of works, the whole weight of the law, or you are in the covenant of grace by faith. And what is the covenant of grace? But the covenant of works fulfilled for us. (laughs) The covenant of grace is the covenant of works fulfilled by Christ for his people. He did everything. What did he, he got up on the cross. What were his last words? It is finished. (laughs) The work is done. The work is complete. There's no more work for us left to do in terms of earning our salvation. Christ has done it all. He has worked. He entered God's rest. He's seated at the right hand of God. He sat down, earned rest for us. Did you know that's the reason we meet on Sunday and not Saturday? Christ was resurrected. The Sabbath has changed from Saturday to Sunday. This holy day of God's rest has changed because why? Christ was resurrected on the first day of the week. He finished the work, he entered his rest, and he earned eternal life and glory for us. That's the only way we can have salvation. That's the only way we can have glory. Adam fell short. We all fell short of the glory of God, but in Christ we have hope. And so this should bring us assurance this morning because I think in our Christian life, we're all legalist at heart. We're all prone to legalism, to add works to our salvation. Yeah, what Christ did is good, but what do I need to do? How can I get the extra edge on salvation? And this cuts the legs out from under that. It says, Christ has earned it all. He's given us his spirit. And so he's earned salvation for us. He's accomplished it in his active obedience, perfect righteousness, and in his passive obedience, he suffered perfectly for our sins. And so all we need to do is receive the open hands of faith that say, that's, I want that. I need that. That's my only hope in life and death. That's our only hope this morning. Let's thank God and praise, praise him for his grace. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, for this covenant of grace that we all in Adam fell we all would have done the same thing in the garden. We all would have taken the fruit. We all would have been deceived, but in the fullness of time, you've sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption into your family. That you've adopted us into your family. We are sons and daughters of the God most high, and so we have We have true assurance this morning that even though we sin and fall into many temptations and trials, even though we have persecutions and sufferings in this life that tempt us to doubt you in your ways, you have given us life in Christ by his obedience to the law perfectly. And by his grace, he's given that to us as a gift. And so all we need to do is receive with the hands of faith this morning. So Give us strength to do this. Give us the eyes of faith. Help us to trust in your promises. And as we go about this week, and as we continue to look at your word, we pray that you would give us hope in Christ alone and know that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, 
to the glory of God alone. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen.